The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. You're worthy of our love and trust. You are worthy of our glad surrender of all things because you are you are that treasure in a field. And for the sake of joy, eternal joy, Nothing else compares to you. Lord, help us to see and live this truth, to repent of our sin. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness reassured for us at the table. Lord, uh, help us not to prefer simply the gifts that you give us but to love you, the giver of all good things. Lord, you are the bread of life. You are the Lord of glory who gives us living water. So may your spirit open our eyes to your goodness. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to love your word, to love that which brings us closer to you and gives wisdom and healing and strength for each day. Thank you for this time to gather and worship you. Bless bless us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Acts 15. If you want to turn in your Bibles there or flip on your phones there, scroll, Acts 15. If you remember... Paul and Barnabas had returned to Antioch after their first missionary journey through the region of Galatia, where many Gentiles turned from their worthless idols to the one true and living God. And churches were established and elders were appointed and people were encouraged to continue in the faith as they faced many tribulations. And a main trial that they immediately faced, and the, really the reason for the writing of the book of Galatians, had to do with, with these Jewish Christians telling these new Gentile believers that to really be a child of God, well, that means you become a Jew. Insisting that these new converts be circumcised and submit to Jewish ceremonial laws. But Paul and Barnabas... They fought for the sake of gospel truth, saying that it's faith alone and that Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. So the burden of the law that no one's been able to keep has been removed because Jesus did it for us. And through faith in him, that righteousness is imputed to us. It's, it's credited that That perfect law-keeping is credited to our account as if we have perfectly met the requirements, the requirements that enable us to be with God and enjoy Him forever. The good news is that Jesus did this for us. And so now He says, take my yoke, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and My burden is light. And it's interesting today because 
people will ignorantly say that, well, Christianity is, is basically the same as all the other world religions. And yes, there may be some shared morality, but Christianity is absolutely different and unique from all the other religions because, because of this, because of grace. It's the very issue of Acts 15. And unlike all the other religions, we do not say that salvation or, or reaching some higher plane of consciousness, that it's by our works. Practically speaking, everyone who, everyone knows whether they admit it out loud or not, they know their own sin. And no amount of work can undo the, the guilt that we feel inside. It's, it's Christ alone. It's Christ alone who actually dealt with that guilt. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that says salvation is a gift of God. A gift that's not based upon personal merit, but upon the merit of another who lovingly paid the price for our sins and gives us the righteousness that he earned. And it's ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And our guilt is removed. And we are invited to enjoy God forever. That's great news. Acts 15 is a battle over this truth. And when Paul and Barnabas returned to their sending church in Antioch, a group of these Jewish believers, well, they, they came down from Jerusalem to, to the Antioch church as well, and they began troubling the Gentile believers there. And so they took this controversy back to the church in Jerusalem, to the other apostles, to make a, a judgment on this, a decision on this between these different views of what Christianity really is. And so we heard arguments from Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and then, and then James. James, who made the final judgment saying the Gentile believers did not need to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jews. That faith in Jesus was all, it's all that anyone needs. It's all that anyone needs in order to be saved. So they crafted a letter for Paul and Barnabas to take back to the church in Antioch. And they sent a couple of men with them in order to testify to this conclusion. And the letter basically said it's faith in Jesus plus nothing else that will save you. But, it's a little strange, we do require that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, and we, we thought about this a couple of weeks ago, and what we considered is that these requirements were not some addition in order to earn salvation, but instead it's a loving reminder that turning to Jesus, if you're, if you're turning to Jesus, you're turning from something. So, turning to Jesus means that you're also turning from your old selves. 
The four things to abstain from involved pagan worship. And so, it was a reminder to these Gentile believers that turning to Jesus involves turning from your pagan worship. And it also had to do with a a loving consideration of their Jewish brothers and sisters. Because, okay, buying some meat offered to idols, it's just meat. It's not sinful. But it could cause them to stumble. It could create a division that ought not to be because we are one body made up of Jew and Gentile. So they were saying, you don't need to become Jews in order to be Christians. You can be a Gentile Christian who's united to Jewish Christians, but there's no such thing as being a pagan Christian. You need to turn from this identity of sin because your new identity is Christ. And it's one body of believers, not divided over race or sex or social status. We're united in him. So the letter was sent and the church in Antioch received it with great encouragement and rejoicing. And then everyone lived happily ever after. And the Christian church has enjoyed perfect love and unity for the past 2,000 years. The end. Oh, wait, there's more. If you're able, please stand. And let's read what happens next, picking it up at verse 36 of chapter 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas... Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take him take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well-spoken He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. 
And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is God's word. You may be seated. One small note. Did you notice at the end, when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to... Luke is writing this, so people will say when he's speaking of we, he's, he's picked up with them. He's on the journey now with them. Okay, there, there's an important truth. At the very beginning of our Bibles, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth... And, you know, at each point of his work of creation, God declares everything to be good. God's creation is good because he is good. It's perfect because he is perfect. And something that's very good is the creation of man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Everything is good. It's perfect prior to sin. And sin is our work. We're the ones who broke the good tools of God. And all throughout Scripture... What we see is God working with broken tools. And even with broken tools, God is able to make something good. But this doesn't mean that sin is not sin. That sin is somehow good. That's not the conclusion that we would make. No, God is good. And His work is always good. And He's working in and through us and our sin... These things that are broken. God is able to ordain good through the sinful actions of men. God works with broken tools and creates something good. Something that's both discouraging and refreshing is the honesty of Scripture. God's children are not portrayed as perfect. The characters are real the various heroes of the Bible, they're, they're, not, they're not photoshopped, fixing their blemishes. No, we see, we see the pimples. We see them warts and all. There's only one perfect hero in the Scriptures, only one without blemish. It's Jesus. The story of the Bible shows God perfectly working with the tools that we broke. And so the early church didn't live happily ever after. And it, oh, it's so disappointing, isn't it? I mean, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, what a great team. And we love great teams. What a, what a great partnership. Barnabas, he's such a tender-hearted guy. He's, he's so thoughtful, so gracious. And Paul, of all people, knows, he knows this. He knows how, what a wonderful man Barnabas is. Because he knows he, as Saul, his past, he was a persecutor before the Lord saved him. And 
this didn't stand in the way of Barnabas going and finding him and sticking by his side when everyone else was afraid of him and didn't trust him. Oh, Barnabas, he's such an encourager, such a humble guy that recognizes Paul's giftedness. And when the name of the band changes from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas, he's not upset. He's a regular Mike Wazowski, just thrilled to be a part of the team. Doesn't need the top billing. So when we see even a guy like Barnabas having a sharp disagreement, we think, couldn't you just work it out? Couldn't you just work it out? Why did you have to split up such a great team? It's like the breakup of a perfect band. A star player leaving for another team. It's, it's so disappointing. And we think things like, you know, what if the Beatles would have just, I don't know, come together right now? What if Michael Jordan didn't leave the Bulls to play baseball where our own Kevin Kluke struck him out? Did you know that? His last at bat sent him back to, thank Kevin, it sent him back to basketball where he won another couple of titles. We ask all these what ifs. What if Paul and Barnabas had stayed together? After all, it's sin, it's sin that broke them up. Wouldn't it have been better if they stayed together? No, because it's God's story. He's the creator. He's the author who works within the story that he's already written. He knows the beginning and the end. He's not surprised by our actions. In fact, he's written them. And his ways, his work is always good. It's always perfect. So, he ordains. He ordained, he intended for this breakup to happen, to happen for a greater good. And this doesn't mean that sin is good or that God forced them to sin. He knows the sin that they'll do and he doesn't prevent it. He's written it. He knows it perfectly because he's the author of the story and he works with broken tools to make something good. And it's mysterious, isn't it? At some point, we're just like, I don't get it, but it makes sense that I don't get it. Because it's, it's not that God is caught off guard in his own story and then scrambles to fix the plot line that we broke. He's not like some, you know, busy mom following their kids around, cleaning up all the messes, picking up the toys to make the room right. Restoring the house to order. No. Each part of the story is what he what he has written. And he glorifies himself as a character in the story, making something beautiful with broken tools. And a part of the story that comes to mind, we can think of a lot of them, but Joseph always comes to mind. 
Joseph, immature, unthinking, a bit arrogant as he boasts about, I'm the favorite one, look at my coat. What's the good that God intended? Well, look at the end of the story when Joseph is actually in a position of power and authority over his brothers. He's saved Egypt from a great famine. Joseph is the savior not only to Egypt, but to his own family who comes to buy grain. He has great reason to think highly of himself, to lord it over his rotten brothers who threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery and lied to their father that he was dead. He spent years in prison because of them, because of their evil their sin against him. But what do we see at the end of the story? We see Joseph as a transformed man, not in spite of the sin, but because of the broken actions of his brothers. God works with broken tools. And of course, we don't conclude that those actions were somehow good. No, it's sin. It's broken. And this isn't to say that God simply walked behind him and fixed the mistakes. Because the concluding statement from the mouth of Joseph is, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you you meant evil against me. It's sin. I'm not going to call it anything else. It's evil. That's what you meant. But God... He wrote the story. He intended. He meant those very same actions that you did. He intended them for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's mysterious. But this is how God works. Evil is evil. Sin is sin. And God is so great that he's able to intend it for good. His work is always good because he is good. And of course, the ultimate evil was done against Jesus by both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever God's hand and God's plan, his written story, had predestined to take place. It's glorious. It's it's beyond us. But it's the truth of God's word. God is that great. God works with broken tools. So yes, it's disappointing that Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways. Verse 39 says that there was a sharp disagreement. They had a fight. And it didn't end with them negotiating a compromise. No, they separated. It was a severe disagreement over Barnabas's cousin, John Mark. You remember John Mark. John Mark, who, who came from a godly family. His mother, Mary, opened her house to the church. It's, it's where they were meeting when the angel, remember when the angel saved Peter out of prison when he was going to be executed? They were in Mary's house. John Mark's mom. And John Mark, you know, he meant well. He began the first missionary journey just wanting to help out, to serve. But then we read in chapter 13 that he left them and he went back to Jerusalem. Luke didn't really 
give us any explanation. They just said he left, went back to Jerusalem. Well, now we're finding out that was a problem. And we wonder, was he homesick? Was the travel too much for him? Was it dangerous and difficult? And was he resenting Paul getting top billing over his cousin Barnabas? Could have been a lot of reasons. And of course, Barnabas, being the encourager that he is, he wanted to forgive forgive Mark, give him another chance. Come on, Paul. Here's an opportunity for him to serve. And this fight came about because both Paul and Barnabas, they loved the people of Galatia and they wanted to follow up and make sure that these new believers were doing well. So they're not just these evangelists that... that get a commitment to the Lord and then leave them to their own. No, a true evangelist apparently is one who brings the gospel to them and disciples them, establishes them in a good church, follows up with them, makes sure they're doing well. And certainly they wanted to make sure that they got the news from the Jerusalem council about the gospel, the decision that was made. But there was this strong argument. And whenever there's a okay, whenever there's a lack of unity, then one or the other or both are sinning. Was Paul was Paul stubborn and unforgiving, or was he wise and counting the cost? Was Barnabas naive, lacking discernment and wisdom, maybe wrongly? prioritizing family over the importance of Christ's church. There's a lot of speculation. There's a, there's a lot of division over this division. And you probably land on the side of the personality that you resemble or admire. But nevertheless, God works with broken tools. And the end result is actually better. Instead of one missionary team, now there's two. Paul takes Silas and the church in Antioch, gives them their blessing, which makes me think Paul was right. Silas, who has different gifts than Barnabas, gifts that in God's wisdom probably served Paul better on these next two missionary journeys. And if John Mark had had gone with them, then they probably wouldn't have invited Timothy. Timothy, who became a very important pastor and helper, even like a son to Paul. So it's better. It's good. And it was probably good that John Mark didn't go because what would have happened? What would have ha- Think about it. If, if you're going along on this, this second journey with Paul and Barnabas and you know that Paul doesn't trust you, He's a little bitter towards you. He doesn't want you to be there. Probably wouldn't have been good for John Mark. So instead, John Mark went with Barnabas back to the island of Cyprus. And and we don't hear any more about either of them in the book of Acts. And Barnabas is, he's just the right guy for John Mark, isn't he? He's, He's the encourager. He's the right guy for the job of restoring and encouraging John Mark. He put him to work. He didn't allow him to sink into self-pity, 
feeling disqualified and useless. And we know this because it's John Mark who, through Peter, eventually writes the Gospel of Mark. So he did great things. God used him mightily. And in ten years' time, when Paul writes his letter to the Colossians, he, he sends greetings to Barnabas's cousin, Mark. Concerning a group that includes Mark, he says, they have been a comfort to me. So Paul appreciates him. There's not an ongoing bitterness. And in Paul's final letter to Timothy, he writes, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So even though there was this breakup, he's not, he's not discarded as some failure. He proves useful in the ministry, and there appears to be some kind of healing between these men. God works with broken tools. He knows what's best, and certainly, as painful as it was, this is what was best for Mark. His failure led to a greater usefulness. And we might think of Paul as being a a hard guy to work with, too critical, too harsh. But it's also interesting how certain personalities, how they're needed for the work that God wants to accomplish. Paul was, was a great intellect. He was a bulldog, uncompromising, and we're grateful for that. We're thankful for this because if not for this, the church would not be the church and the gospel would have been distorted. It took a person like Paul. He was just the right instrument, broken as he was, in the hand of God. And not many people, not many people would keep going. Keep going, return several times to a place where they had been stoned by a mob and left for dead. Not many people would continue on through sickness and beatings and shipwrecks and imprisonment. It took a certain kind of guy. It took Paul. God knows what he's doing. And again, it doesn't, doesn't justify the sin, but it gives us confidence that in God's we can see God and his ability to create something good. It took a character like Paul. It took a character like Martin Luther to bring about the Protestant Reformation. It took that kind of intellect and stubborn boldness to stand against Rome, restoring the, the true church through, the, through gospel truth. He was a bulldog. He was, he was crude. He said some terrible, sinful, anti-Semitic things. He was a sinner. A broken but necessary tool in God's hand. One writer said that some of the church's greatest leaders have been difficult people. Luther, in a famous self-evaluation, said, I am rough boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for the removing of stumps and stones. What a description. I am born for the removal, removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns and clearing wild forests. 
So God uses certain people for certain times and circumstances. And the breaking up with Barnabas and Mark, well, it led to the addition of Timothy. Paul returns to Lystra with Silas. Lystra, the place where he was stoned and left for dead, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. We read that Timothy Timothy was an uncircumcised son of a mixed marriage, a broken tool. His mother was a Jewish believer. His father was Greek and now presumed by many to be dead. So think of the brokenness in this family. Initially, the parents, they're unequally yoked. The father has the authority, and because he's a Gentile, Timothy's not circumcised as an infant. And most agree that Timothy's father, that, that he died by this time. So there's, there's a great loss of a father as well, a void in his life. We know that his mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois, taught him the scriptures. And because of their faith and influence, he would also be considered a Jew. But an uncircumcised Jew, which is a problem. So he likely experienced some rejection by the Jewish community because they would have considered him an apostate Jew not being circumcised. God uses broken tools. And what a perfect fit for Paul. Paul who ministers to Gentiles and yet still goes to the synagogues and ministers to the Jews. So Timothy can minister to both. And this is why we see Timothy being willing to be circumcised. It's not a contradiction of the battle that was just fought by Paul, it's not a matter because it's not a matter of salvation here. We've already dealt with that error, and Paul would be the last person to allow that for that reason. No, it's it's for the sake of ministering to the Jews, not wanting to have any obstacle, not wanting them to consider him some apostate, not allowed into the synagogues to present the gospel. So it's it's for the sake of the gospel. It wasn't salvation. It was cultural. It was for the sake of ministry. It's the mindset of Paul, now Timothy's spiritual father, who said, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. In the circumstances of his life, Timothy is broken. And this brokenness makes him the perfect fit to work with Paul. Having the ability to minister to both Jew and Gentile. It's amazing to see how God sovereignly works through broken people and circumstances. How he guides and moves his people in his story. And if you stop and reflect, I bet you can see it in your own life as well. 
through brokenness and sin. God uses you and makes something good through, through your pain, through your suffering. You become a tool in the hand of God in order to bless and help and minister in ways that otherwise were not possible. God is good. The hand of God was leading them in a variety of ways. And verses 6 through 10, well, it's a much more obvious leading going on in these verses, form of God's providence. Let's, let's read that again. I want to put a map up for you to see. Try to follow along. Do we have that? There it is. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Follow the red line. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They're coming right up to Asia. Boom. The Holy Spirit forbids them. Now what does that mean? Forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Does it... It seems like something... Something strange that the Holy Spirit wouldn't want them to go to a people and preach. And we wonder, you know, how did this happen? Was there some invisible wall that they bumped into? Did circumstances prevent them? Was, was Silas, remember Silas is described earlier as having the gift of prophecy. Maybe, maybe he was given a word of prophecy. A direct message. Um, we're not really given the details. Bill, nobody really knows. Nobody knows what happened there. But what we do know, what we do know is that Jesus is still active. He's still guiding his disciples. And even though our our times, our times are different than theirs, we too should realize that Jesus is the head of the church and he, he still moves and guides us where he wants us to go. I don't think the, the norm would be today, the norm isn't going to be a word of prophecy because we have the complete prophetic word in the Bible. There isn't... Uh, an apostolic ministry that's continued to this day. No need for signs and wonders. But that isn't to say that God no longer guides us. Of course He does. And the most obvious way that He does guide us is through His Word and through biblical wisdom and discernment and godly counsel. We can reflect, we can look back and see the hand of providence working through circumstances that prevent us or lead us. Okay, so they're traveling west, and instead of continuing on toward Ephesus, which would have been, they eventually get there, they head north. And then we read, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. Again. It's like bumper cars or something. They're headed west, run into a wall, head north, hit another wall, go west to Troas. 
And I love the description that Luke gives us here, calling the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Jesus. Earlier he said the Holy Spirit prevented them. Now he says the Spirit of Jesus. He says this to let us know, to remind us, Jesus is active. He's working through the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that the Holy Spirit stopped them in Asia Minor and now Jesus stops them from going into Bithynia. Both are, It's the work of Jesus in both circumstances. Guiding them by the Holy Spirit. Luke's just using that name to remind us that even though Jesus, even though he's ascended, he's not absent. All along he has been present with his disciples. He's been with them, guiding them through the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for us today. He's with us. He's ascended. He's not absent. He's with us. Verse 8. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And we in the West are blessed because of this. Because the gospel eventually gets to us. Jesus is the head of his church. And he had his reasons for for bypassing Asia and Bithynia at that particular time and calling them to go to Macedonia instead. And we just, we, we wonder why. Why did he do this? I don't know. But he did. But what we should know, what we just cling to, is, well, I don't know why, but he did. He did do it. Jesus did guide them. He does have his purposes. And he is active in guiding his people. God uses broken tools. He can even use a sinful argument. Division for the sake of greater gospel effectiveness. And again, sin is sin. It's still wrong. We're never justified because of a good outcome. But God, all of His work is good. God can use us. God can use you. And we should feel like our lives, we shouldn't feel like our lives are over. And sometimes I think we get stuck and we feel like, I'm just useless, and my life is of no good to anyone. That we have no usefulness in God's kingdom because we just feel broken. God is a God of redemption. God uses broken people. And we should always repent and always seek to be used by Him in all the days that God gives us breath. We, we see God using Paul and his stubborn determination. He uses Barnabas to restore Mark. He uses Mark, moving him in a different direction, which leads to a better use of his gifts, writing the gospel of Mark. 
being in an atmosphere where he is restored for greater usefulness to not, to not only Peter, but also to Paul. And because of this, he uses Silas and Timothy. Timothy in his broken circumstances. And the same is true for you. God intends to work in your broken life. He works with the tool of loss. The tool of sinful failure. Weakness. And I want to remind you of this because Satan has a way of paralyzing people. He wants you to think that your life is over. But as long as God gives you breath, his intention is to use you for good. There's a purpose and meaning for each of us. So don't listen to that voice that says, it's over. Your time is past. Your sin is beyond redemptive purposes. Your disability prevents you from ministering. That this change in your life, this devastating situation, that has rendered you useless for the kingdom. We hear stuff like that, don't we? No, we need to tell ourselves the truth. Tell yourself the truth. Speak to your soul and say, Hope in God, soul. He works with broken tools. And so I'm going to trust Him to work. I'm going to work trusting Him to work through me, even through me. It's good news. Let's pray. Our great and sovereign God, maker of heaven and earth, it's true that you do all things well, that nothing, nothing is outside of your control, that your work is good, and you've chosen to work with broken tools. You are, you are a God of redemption. Your story is the greatest one of all, and we are so blessed to be used by you for the sake of your glory. God, we praise you. You... You who heal the brokenhearted and bind up our wounds. You who determines the number of stars, giving names to them all. For great are you, Lord, abundant in power, your understanding beyond measure. There's no greater hope, no certainty apart from you. So, Lord, please remind us of this confidence that we have in you. Strengthen us. Comfort us. Reassure your people that you, you have more for them to do. That your work through them is good. So we praise you. We give you thanks. Thank you for the food that we're about to eat for this time of fellowship. Bless this time, bless this food, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.